Good morning, beloved. We are starting a new study. Uh, We are going to be in the book of Galatians. So if you want to make your copy of scripture ready, we'll be in Galatians chapter 1 today. While you are turning there, I would like for you to consider the importance of branding. Um, Any business, any organization, uh, branding is a vital part of what it is to be healthy in such an endeavor. And uh, branding is more than just the logo, but it often um, is kind of like that's the, the apex of your branding is you, you see the logo and it should conjure up some thoughts, but it can be more than that. Um, take, for instance, Batman. You know, Batman shows up and has that famous line that he says more than anything. What is it? I'm Batman. <laughs> but when, when Batman shows up and he says, I'm Batman, and you can say it in a way better Batman voice than I can, uh, so I won't even try. But when Batman says, I'm Batman, It's way more than just, hey, this is the moniker by which you should address me before I, like, pulverize you. So it's it's actually, it's conveying so much more. It's all of what Batman stands for. You have the the bat logo with with the iconic bat and the, the sharp wings and everything. But anytime you see that, if it's projected in the sky or it's in one of his little dart things he throws or on his chest or just wherever you see it or wherever you hear him say, I'm Batman, it's not just, oh, that's who it is, like his name. It's all of the promise of justice and the heartache in his life that has driven him to this point. It's the forsaking of his multi-million dollar corporation so that he can focus on just bringing justice and all of the vengeance, everything wrapped up into that, the whole story of who Batman is and what he promises to deliver in saying that or you seeing that is all captured in the brand of Batman. Or take, maybe this is more accurate for many of us there, just more relatable, Amazon. How many of you have Amazon Prime and live by it? So like we get so much from Amazon and it's delivered with such convenience. But you look at their logo and it's the word Amazon. You have the word Amazon in this nice simple font and yet under the word Amazon, you have this arrow. You have this line running from the letter A to the letter Z and it forms an arrow And not only does it form an arrow, but you see kind of the dimple, the cheek line to where that arrow becomes a smile. And so what's the point? This is Amazon's branding. Amazon has a story to tell, and the story goes with a promise. The story is everything from A to Z we have, and we will deliver in such a way that it's going to put a smile on your face. And so the brand of Amazon is conveyed to us, and it's important It's a way of helping people to know what you are about, who you are, what is your story, and what is your promise. And and the problem is that often uh, businesses or individuals will fail because we can't get branding right. What happens to a business or individual that cannot land on who it is that they are, what their story is going to be, or what is it that they promise? Confusion, chaos, vision drift, all kinds of stuff, and it ultimately leads to a splintering or just outright failure. And that's what we're going to see in the letter to Galatians. It's Paul, and not so much a marketing scheme, but he's saying like, this is the brand, and you gotta see this. What's going to be our story, beloved? What will be the promise that we bank on and that we are going to deliver, that we will live by and die by, that this is who we are? And so we want to jump into this, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in the first verse. Seems like a great place to start. So if you have your copy ready, uh, here we go. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, 
an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And so this is the greeting. This is the introduction here. Paul is starting. And so I want to give us some context before we go any further and understand um, my son this week has been working on, I made him a promise and I, I I overpromised because I said, I'll give you $20 if you can memorize all the books of the Bible. And he already had like a third of it done by day two. I was like, oh, I should have brought that number down. But <laughs> like, it's crazy the things that will motivate him when it's so hard in so many other ways. But context here. He's learning the books of the Bible, and I want him to understand that these are different books that are actually not just books, but some of them are letters Some of them are historical narratives. Some of them are just all kinds of filled like poetry. There's there's all these genres that make up the scripture as we know it. And yet we call them 66 books of the Bible collectively coming together to tell one story, this overall book as we call it, the Bible. And so we divide that up into Old Testament and New Testament and all these different ways. But here for our context, what we need to know is that this is a letter. So imagine this was actually written about 2,000 years ago, written by an individual and written to an audience. And so we have to consider that. And so as we look at this, well, who wrote this letter that was written around AD 50, somewhere in that range, but this is written from Paul. He says it right up front, Paul, an apostle. And so what is an apostle? Who's this Paul guy writing this letter? He says he's an apostle. And we know this about him from other recounts, and and you'll learn a little bit about this in this letter, but um, primarily from the book of Acts, and then we see a lot more in 1 Corinthians as well. But Paul is an apostle. He was sent by Jesus as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so you may actually encounter some people in our day and age that will say, hi, I'm apostle such and such. And so um, we we can say that in a way that's true, and we can say that in a way that's actually dangerous. Um, So there are two distinctions. The term apostle just simply means one who is sent. And so let's think like lowercase apostle. It just, it's a term that means one who is sent. So anyone can be an apostle. In religious terms, we all are apostles and that we are all sent to the nations. Everywhere we go, we are to be about the glory of God, sharing the gospel. And so in a sense, we're all apostles, but then it takes on different meaning. They're like, typically an apostle, lowercase a, means one sent and there's a particular skill set, particularly in leadership and communication that goes with this. Uh, But then there's this uppercase apostle, we'll say it like that. Um, He doesn't say uppercase apostle here, but this is what he's referring to. There was a select group of apostles that seemed to have an extra sense of power and anointing from the Spirit in the early stages of the church. These would be the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. Judas hangs himself after betraying Jesus, is no longer an apostle, and they replace him. The early church replaces him so that there would be 12 again. And then you have Paul come along. Paul was not first-hand witness and and follower of Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. Paul becomes a Christian after persecuting Christians and then encountering the risen, glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. The church has already been started and is starting to flourish, and Paul is trying to kill the church, and then Jesus shows up. And so Paul now becomes capital A apostle. He has a first-hand encounter where Jesus personally in bodily form sends him. And so Paul is one of these select apostles 
who has a firsthand account, revelation of the gospel straight from Jesus himself, and now this official sending. So Paul is one of those, and that's why Paul writes the majority of the New Testament letters. Like, he is a very important player in this part. He is one of these select apostles. And so Paul identifies himself as someone sent with immediate divine authority. Um, and we know, um, and the next part, who gets this? He says, to the churches of Galatia. So who's writing the letter? Paul, an apostle. Who's receiving the letter? The churches of Galatia. And what is their relationship? If you look in the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul actually went at least once, if not numerous times, would be much more logical, through the region of Galatia, which is in Asia Minor. And so Paul goes through this region and he's planting churches. So Paul knows many of these people personally. And he's writing a letter based on some things that he's heard. He's trying to communicate with these people that he can't be there in person, so he's sending a letter. And so we'll learn a lot about that, but as we go through this whole book, I want us to know the context here. Paul, an apostle, writing to churches of Galatia. All right, so here we go. Uh, Last thing you need to know about the churches of Galatia before we keep moving on in the text is that in Galatia, there's a heavy mixture of both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles meaning non-Jews. And so you have racial divisions and tensions, and they're coming about in the church, as we're gonna see. That there's this mixture of people who have grown up hearing all of the Old Testament, trying to live by the law and everything, and then you have these other people who are not Jew by ethnicity, and yet they're being invited into the family of God as Christianity flourishes, the gospel invites them in, and they become a new people, and yet you have this clash of, but we've always done it this way, and, and now, but what, what does this mean? If I become part of this, what does it mean for me? So you have all of this stuff happening, and that's why Paul is writing into this. So now, we keep going. Paul has said, this is who I am, this is who I'm writing to, and now verse three. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did he just end the letter? (laughs) He said amen. Well, we say that at the end of the prayer, right? Amen essentially means in our common vernacular, so be it. Like, make it so. And so Paul goes from, this is who I am, this is who I'm writing to, to, hey, here's the gospel. And when you see that, like the gospel is going to be paramount throughout the entirety of this letter. The gospel is what is crucial. But then we, we really have to answer the question, like, what is the gospel? This, this keeps me up at night. And this is not a knock on any of us. Um, but the reality is, I can meet with every one of you over the course of a week, if I had the time. But if I, if I met with every one of you and just simply said, what is the gospel? And you shared with me. Do you know how different the responses would be as I compile them? It would be all over the place. And there would probably be quite a few like similar strains running through them. I, I would hope and pray that, that many of you would have very similar responses. But we still would get so many different ideas of just different emphases and things like that. And so what actually is the gospel? I don't want to try to like boil it down into a somewhat simple way of saying it that is really not that simple. It's actually really complex. But you can think of the gospel as all of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he said. All of the scriptures are actually all about Jesus. Jesus said so himself. In John 5, he's talking to some religious elites. He's like, hey, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you'll find eternal life, and rightly so, but you've missed that they're all pointing to me. 
that all of the scriptures, all of those 66 books and all their different genres and everything are all actually telling one cohesive story that is all the story of God and his redemptive work for us and the glory of his name. And so it's all pointing to Jesus. So when you think, what is the gospel? Think Jesus. He is at the center of it all. Jesus. And so all of who he is, what he said, and what he did, it is the great story of God's redemptive work, both both past and present and future. All of it. But now let's look at how Paul kind of formulates this in verses three through five. As he's saying, this is the gospel. Paramount from the beginning of the letter, I've just said who I am, who you are, and now let's make this clear. Here's the gospel. So, three to five. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. And so first thing that stands out, if we've said the gospel is all about who Jesus is, what he said and what he did, so I have to think, who is Jesus? And what does it say of Jesus here? He's the rescuer. So in verse four, he came, he gave himself our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. So Jesus is the rescuer, and that begs the question, what do we need rescue from? What do I need to be rescued from? Why did he need to come and rescue me? And it's because of our sin and this present evil age is what the text says. So we have to understand this is the gospel, is that the gospel is good news. That's what we actually translate it to often. Gospel means good news, but it's good news in light of bad news. The bad news is we needed rescue. We need to be rescued. And why do we need to be rescued? Because we are broken. We are sinful. Sin at its root means missing the mark. We don't measure up to the standard of God who is holy. We have fallen short and the wages of sin is death. And so the punishment for our failure to be who God originally intended for us to be created us to be good in this right relationship with him. But we have fallen from that in sin. We have rebelled against God. We are sinners. And so we need to be rescued. And not only are we personally sinners, but we live in a present evil age that we need to be rescued from. And so the gospel is that Jesus is a rescuer and he is rescuing us from our sin and from this present evil age. And then how did he rescue us? How did Jesus rescue us? We look just prior to where it says that he rescued us. He gave himself for our sin. He rescued us by giving himself to die on the cross, to be the sacrifice, to take on the just consequences of all of our sin on himself, to become a curse so that we would not be cursed. This is how he rescues us from our sin and from this present evil age, that Jesus would die in our place, that he would give himself up freely for us. That is beautiful. And what did this rescue result in for us? This is actually where Paul starts. Grace and peace to you. That we have grace. Grace means undeserved favor. That God loves us with an unconditional love, a love that is not conditioned by my obedience or what I do, my effort, anything like that. He loves us in grace. And so Paul says, grace to you. How do you have grace? You know that grace is to you by the gospel, the good news that you are a sinner, but a rescuer has come and he rescued you by giving himself up for you. And now you have peace. Peace with God. When we were the enemy of God, God made peace by satisfying the very wrath of God. That the gospel is, in short, God rescuing us from God. 
Like the greatest thing that stood against us because of our sin, the reason we need to be rescued is because the wrath of God is to come on us and it's justly so. But God says, no, I will bear the weight of that myself. I will step into the place where you should stand condemned and I'll be condemned. Jesus gave himself for us to bring us peace. And now, lastly, in this gospel, how do we live in response to this rescue? How do we live in response to the grace and peace that is ours in the gospel? You worship. You live a life of worship. And that is why Paul breaks out into doxology and we ask like, he said amen. Like, is this the end? No, because he breaks out into worship. Like, if you see that grace and peace has come to us from God because Jesus gave himself for our sin so that we would not be stuck in this present evil age living under the curse of our sin, but he would be the rescuer, then what do we do in response to that? We say, God, to you be the glory, like forever and ever. And so verse five, Paul says, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. Like, so be it. Let God have all the glory, every bit of it from now and forevermore. Let it be his. To him be the glory forever. And church, understand, this is also crucial to the gospel. Too often we think of the gospel in this futuristic sense of like, oh, God, in the past he saved me, but that's so that when I die, I'll go to heaven and live with him forever. And that is true, but it's only part of the truth. You get a much better understanding of what the gospel is to realize he died for you in the past so that you can live for him today and then forevermore in worship to him. The gospel is God to be glorified now and forevermore. So be it. So start now to live a life of gratitude in response to what God has done for us. To him be the glory forever. To live under his rule and his reign. To live in the delight of knowing that he loves us now, even now, when we have not yet been perfected. That even now, he loves us and wants to be in personal communion with us, that he wants us to enjoy him every day and every moment, everything we see, to let that just redirect our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts to the love that he has for us, the joy we have in him. Man, to him be the glory forever. And whose will is this done according to? Look back at verse four gave himself, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This is vital for understanding the rest of this book. All of the gospel and all that it entails, according to whose will? God's will. He wanted to do this. God desired to do this for us. Because of his love for this world, he sent God the Son, to die, to rescue us from our sin and this present evil age so that he would be glorified forever. He wanted to do this. This did not catch him by surprise. And if it's according to his will, not according to Kevin's will, then who is the author and executor of all of our salvation from start to finish? God. It's all him. He alone deserves the glory because it is according to his will that yes, I have genuine responsibility in this life. This is not a puppet show where I have no volition of my own. God actually made us to navigate this world and make real choices, decisions and everything. And yet all of this is done according to his will that he broke in when I wanted nothing to do with him. He opened my eyes to see his spirit regenerates our hearts and the words of Ezekiel the prophet, he says that he's gonna take away a heart of stone the heart of stone does not feel anything. 
He will take that and he will give me a heart of flesh to feel again and open my eyes in faith that Jesus was constantly talking about how sin is blinding, that we're blind. We don't even realize that we're dead and stuck in sin. But then in faith, the spirit comes and opens our eyes to see and I realize the beauty and grandeur of God, his gospel, his grace, and I respond in faith. And now I love him because he first loved me. All of this, all of this, according to his will, from start to finish. It is his story. It is him at the center. He is at the center of all of it. But our tendency is even if we say outwardly, I believe, I cannot save myself, God will save me. Our tendency is to fall into these ruts to think, you know, somehow I've got to measure up. I've got to get this together. I've got to, I've got to fix this. Like, man, if I was a son of God, I wouldn't struggle with this. And we start to question all these things and say, like, man, I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps. Like, if I can just white knuckle it, if I can get through this, like, surely I've got to be able to do this, all this stuff. All of that starts to creep in, this tendency to somehow think that some way it's about me and what I can do. When the gospel is no. Again, this does not rid you of any responsibility, but you have to see it is God at the center. Grace is not just unmerited favor. It is, but it is also the very power of God. Grace is what saves us and then what fuels us and pushes us forward, but it is always God empowering. God is behind every bit of our salvation. He is at the center of it all, and again, so to him be the glory forever. But again, our tendency is at the heart of what Paul is addressing here, and this is what he's going to be addressing throughout this whole letter, is this tendency to fall into thinking in some way I have to deliver. And so there's something I must do here. There's, there's, I've, got, I've got to measure up in some way. This grace, it just kind of goes against us. Like, what is this idea? Like, undeserved favor? Like, I really want to know that I've earned a place in your favor, God. I really want to know that I really belong here because of something that I've done. When the gospel is, no, it's not what you have done. It's not what you could ever do. It's entirely what he has done. It's now just live in freedom. Live in the joy of knowing that he loves you and he has rescued you. Live here. So, as we conclude, I want to point out a couple of things to you. This gospel, this good news that God has rescued us, and it's according to His will, He is at the center of it all, and to Him be glory forever as we live in response to that reality. The gospel is personal, and the gospel is communal. And so, I want to, I want to break these down very briefly for you. The gospel is personal. You personally, look at me, look at me, beloved. You personally must decide, what will you do with this? When Jesus stands saying, who do you say that I am? How do you respond? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Is he King? What do you personally say about him? The gospel is personal. You need to make a decision. Will you follow him? Will you hear his invitation? Will you follow him knowing I could never earn my way to you, but you condescended, son of God, you came into this mess to rescue me. You took my place on a cross. And so I'll give you my life because you gave your life for me. 
Will you personally do that? Paul saw this. This is why Paul, in the opening, as he's saying, like, this is who I am, he's identifying himself, and we're all living a lifelong pursuit of just making sense of who we are, our identity. Who is Kevin? Oh, I'm trying to figure this out. Like, who am I? Learning all these things about me as I go throughout year after year, but who am I? Identity is at the heart of what it is to be human. We want to make sense of who we are. And Paul, in this address, says, like, this is who I am. I'm Paul, but you know how I make sense of who I am? The gospel. Like, Paul, in just acknowledging, like, this is who's writing to you, he can't help himself, but from the very get-go, see that his identity is in Christ. It's in the gospel. The gospel is what gave him his framework. He says, I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Like, did you really need to say who raised him from the dead? Like, did, couldn't you just say, like, by Jesus the Son and by God the Father? Like, wasn't that enough? Because in the next few verses, you're already going to start unpacking the gospel. Why did you need to say it there? The same reason that we should have the same tendency. That you cannot separate, like, me as a son of God. I can't help but say who I am in light of who Christ is and what he has done. This is where Paul's heart is. He's like, this is what makes sense to me of who I am. This is where I find my identity. It is personal to me that I am loved by God. He revealed his love in sending his son to die for me. He raised him from the dead, so I'm gonna have life forevermore with him too. Today, this is what defines me. This is who I am. I can't even say my name without saying something about the gospel. <laughs> it's just who I am. What a beautiful thing, because the gospel is personal. And I want to break down what Paul says there. He says, an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And he says, not from or by man. He's an apostle not from or by man. And so I want to make a distinction here. Paul is talking about how he is one of these particular uppercase A apostles um, that he received the gospel that he's going to defend that he's already started articulating. He received it personally, directly from Jesus himself. And so we don't have that privilege, okay? So offices in the church today actually are from and through men. Like me as an elder, that is only because the church sees me as qualified to be an elder to pastor you. And so I do not have the privilege of Paul to say, hey, look, regardless of what you guys say, I'm an apostle. Jesus sent me directly from him, listen to the gospel he firsthand gave me. I don't have that privilege. And so there is a distinction to be made here that Paul is saying he is an apostle in a very particular way. And yet, this is so true for us, right? As we think through that, where do you find your identity? I know where my tendency when I'm not in a healthy place with God is. By man and through man. I start looking horizontally and looking inwardly. I start to look around and think, huh, from men? What do others say of me? As I navigate life and I make decisions and, and I succeed or I fail, I'm always looking around like, how do they think of that? What do they think of me? Oh. And usually it hurts. Sometimes it puffs us up and sometimes it just deflates us. Uh, Tim Keller said that success too often goes to our head and pride too often to our, fart, our, our, to our heart, the failure to our heart. I'm gonna butcher that so badly. <laughs> so sorry. Success too often goes to our head and failure to our heart. Much clearer that time. But isn't that true? But why is that? It's because we're looking around horizontally. We're looking at the way that others see us. Man, when I succeed, 
Look how they're looking up to me now. All five foot nine of me, they're looking up at me. And when I fail, oh, that was embarrassing. Why was it embarrassing? They saw. They can see my failure. We're looking horizontally for our identity. Or we look inwardly, by man or through man. Uh, this, this week, Courtney and I went to dinner with another couple in the church, and <laughs> I'm walking with this husband, and I was telling him, like, this, this shop that I'm familiar with um, in the area had just changed over, and it was this new thing. I was like, I, I just drove by and saw, like, all the signs. Like, now it's, like, metaphysics and all this spiritualist, spiritualist stuff. I can't talk today. Um, and, and so I was telling him about it, and we're going to be walking by it to go get dessert with our wives, and as, I just love this about him, that as soon as he sees it, like, without hesitation, with no discussion, he just opens the door and walks in. Like, we're going, all right, here we go. It's going to be an adventure. And, and we go up there, and we start having this conversation with the, the person who's running the store. And, and just, like, so what do you believe about this stuff? And like, what's, what's the point, all this stuff? And we're having this conversation. And, and one of the things that the guy kept saying was, you know, all the answers really are inside. You gotta look inside. Every truth is gonna be inside. Which is so in keeping with our culture now and postmodern thought of truth is relative. Like, you be you. And all like the, the just continued vagueness of no one can really define anything anymore. And yet we don't see how that is absolutely destroying us. That anxiety is on unprecedented levels. And just all of the just atrocity, like it is clearly an affront to humanity to say that there is no real truth and we can just be our own God. Now just look inward. Like if I want to know who Kevin is, I should just really seek inside of Kevin. What's in me? That is nonsense, and it will crush you. We cannot look horizontally for who we are, and we cannot look inwardly for who we are. We must look vertically, and Paul got that, that the gospel is personal. You look to God to make sense of who you are. You listen to what he says of you. We named our church Beloved, because I want every single time that I say the word beloved as I address you, for you to be just constantly reminded, this is what defines you, that you were loved by God. You are his beloved. He loves us. That defines who we are. And so we look to him to make sense of who we are. That's what Paul is saying there. Look to him. Not from man or by man. So the gospel is personal, but the gospel is also communal. We, we don't overlook the fact that, that God saved persons to become a people, the people of God, his special possession, a holy nation, that we have been called out of darkness into marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies. A people, not just persons, people. And so Paul got that too. Paul writes from a personal place, this is who I am, and this is the gospel, this makes sense of who I am. But then he also says, with the brothers, as he's addressing to the churches of Galatia, he says, with the brothers. He is writing with the brothers. Paul saying, hey, I had this special privilege of I had a direct revelation. I saw Jesus face to face. He personally gave me the gospel. I know it. And so I'm going to deliver it to you because you guys are living in some confusion. I want you to know this is absolutely the gospel. I know it because Jesus himself gave it to me. But then he's saying, but look, while that is true, and I can stand alone on that, I want you to also know this is what the brothers are saying they're in agreement on. And I'm part of this. 
I'm not just going to place myself above all of you. I'm going to say, as the church, we come together and we hold to this truth, the gospel together. And the beauty of this, beloved, is like in a time when so much of our culture is just tearing at the seams, trying to push apart, like everything is like, oh, nope, cancel culture. Like, oh, like how much counsel, counseling do we hear now? It's like, you just need to cut ties cut ties, that's toxic, get rid of this, get rid of this, like all of that stuff. And you're like, where is that in scripture? There's some things that you can argue that, but over and over and over and over and over again in scripture, we see how God loves to reconcile and bring us together. And so the church, when we hold the gospel in the center, like think about this, like, you know, the, the like the um, parachute thing that you play as a kid, like everybody goes around the edge and like you pull on it and you're like, toss it up and you can put a kid in there and throw him up and all this stuff. It's fun. It's great. Maybe the safer way now is a ball. I don't know. But like, the whole idea there, if, if you imagine that parachute is the gospel and we're all on that and we're all pulling, when we're pulling, that thing can only give so much until ultimately we're all pulling together. And it is actually like the gospel as we all hold on to that. It's bringing us together. And Paul says the gospel is personal, but it is also communal that we come together, the beauty of the church, that we were, not to, we were not meant to be in isolation. You're meant to be with the family of God to fight sold, soldiers, like fighting shoulder to shoulder, not alone, to where the enemy can come in every direction, but shoulder to shoulder so that, hey, they're moving this way, so you just kind of, eh, all right, I'll pivot. You still got this way? I'm good. Together, together, we come, the gospel brings us together. So the gospel, bottom line, the gospel informs us of who we are. And so back to branding, like what is your story? Beloved, what is our story? What is the thing that we will be known for? What is the promise that we, life or death, we are going to see this come about? We are going to be obedient to this command of our Lord, that we're going to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, that every nation would know who Jesus is, that he is at the center of it all, and to him be glory forever and ever, because he's the one who rescued us. He gave himself for us, and it's according to the will of God. From start to finish, it's him, and now we live in the freedom and delight of what he has done, and so let this be our story. Let this be our brand, so to speak. Yes, we have a church name. We have some graphics. We even have a logo and all that stuff. But you know what the power is here? It's none of that. It's the gospel. God himself at work. So let's chase him with everything we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Uh, thank you for good news that when we were living in the midst of of bad news, um, so much bad news that we were actually even blind to it. Um, God, you broke in um, your story. God, you love us in grace and you have brought peace through your own sacrifice, through your own life of perfection, Jesus. Now we in our imperfect lives can actually live a life that gives glory to you because of what you have done. God, make us people who are full of gratitude and passion to see your gospel clearly, to proclaim your gospel clearly, to share it with the nations. And that means starting with our actual neighbors, the people who live next to us, God. Give us a heart like Paul. I will not back down from this. I don't care what other people think of me. 
And yet I won't forsake those who are with me. But I'll look to you and I'll press on. Father, help us. Make us the church you want us to be. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.